Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your love, for your power. Thank you that you've called us and marked us for such a time as this. And there's none other but you. Your grace is always on time. Your grace is always sufficient. So today, Lord, minister to us in this building and at home, wherever we may be, whenever this is heard, that grace is received. Mm. And that grace has an audience that brings freedom. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone said? So we continue on. This is the last really kind of focused on scene. I want to pick out someone that really it almost seems like a, a character in a story, the story that I'm going to share with you, John chapter 8. But before I do, I want to talk to you about this. Have you ever been caught in the act? You know what I'm talking about, the act that brings shame and guilt and hurt and pain, the act that brings regret. The act that brings hurt to you and to those you love or those you care about. You see, we've all done that, and we will probably do some of those things in the future because we're not perfect, we're human. But what I want you to realize when we go through those times and when we commit those acts and we go, how did we do that? How did that happen? I want you to realize that God's grace is sufficient, but get this, God's grace always has an audience. Now, I could preach on the audience of one, right? The one who committed the act or was involved in the act and they need grace. Yes, that's, that's a give me, right? But there's always more than one audience. Anytime God releases his grace. Anytime we're caught in an act that brings hurt, pain, disappointment, whatever it might be, we need to realize that even if you're suffering or not suffering, there's an audience in the, in the view of what's going on around you. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 8. <clears throat> John chapter 8. I'm going to read a few verses to you about a woman caught in the act. A woman caught in the act. It says in verse 1, it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back in the temple. A crowd uh, a crowd gathered soon, and he sat down and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of re- the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, say caught in the act. So it doesn't matter what that is. It can be lying, mistrust, cheating, you know, hurting someone, disappointing someone, or even yourself, right? But the woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd 
only left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. You know, there's more than one audience. We know there's an audience of God, of Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? The Bible says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in John chapter 1. We go through all the different things of who he is, the Messiah, the Savior. But I love in Romans 5, it talks about Moses, said Moses gave the law, but Jesus came and gave grace. So what I want you to realize is, is that Jesus came and he is our grace. How are we saved? By grace through faith, right? Isn't that what the scripture says? We're born again whenever we believe that Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again, and we accept him as Lord and Savior in our heart. Once that happens, what happens? You are saved by grace, by Jesus, what? Through faith. Grace is more than an adjective or a verb. Grace is also a noun. It's Jesus. And he is our grace. He is our Savior. He is the one that fills the gap. He is the bomb of Gilead. He is the one that brings the peace in the midst of the storm. He is the one that brings the healing. It's not his time to judge yet. Because he said this, Satan, what? John 10, 10 comes, what? But to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come, Jesus said, what? I come to give life and to give life, what? What? More abundantly. That means it's going to be more abundant than you're already living or could live. More abundantly. More abundantly than what? Death, sin, sickness, disease, failure, guilt, shame, disappointment, hurt, offense, addiction. Whatever it is that is that act that gets us sometimes or has in the past or now it might be a different type of act that you're being tempted with. I want you to realize that there's more than one audience. Now, there's more than you being a participant and Jesus as the audience. We also see that there was a group of people there because what? Jesus came what? To teach again in the synagogue. And what happened is there was a huge crowd that would come every time he would come and listen to him as he would teach and release the word. You imagine what this audience is like. I mean, they're, they're, they're hearing from ancestors about how great their God is. They're hearing about their ancestors saying that he is the Jehovah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, right? He's Rapha, our healer. He's, he, he's Yahweh, our God. He's, he's our Messiah who will always be with us. They're, they're hearing all these amazing things about God. But they hadn't experienced him. Because God hadn't spoken for 300 years at this point. Since Malachi, actually, was the last prophet that spoke under the unction of God. Now, they've been taken over by the Romans, and they're not totally slaves, but they're indentured servants for sure. They had their own little politics and religion and economy within itself, but Caesar got his. And now this group has heard about their God, through the power of Moses, opened the Red Sea, 
to bring over a million sons and daughters out of slavery of the Egyptian power, and then how it closed and killed hundreds of thousands of their soldiers. They heard about their God who, what? He brought food from heaven, manna from heaven, and they got tired of that. He even brought quail. He brought the fire by night, not just to see, but to heat them up because it's cold in the desert at night. And he brought the cloud by day. It says that as they traveled around, even though they got out of the will of God toward the end, for the next 40 years that their shoes, the bottom of whatever they put and made shoes out of, didn't wear out. I heard about him working through David and slaying the giant. They heard about this God that brought down the walls of Jericho. They heard about this amazing God who was with Daniel in the lion's den, who was with Joseph in the pit, the palace, and the jail. Heard about this amazing Savior, this amazing God, this amazing grace. That was audience number two. But then there's always audience number three, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The religious ones, the ones that have been operating by the rule of law. See, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. He said, I came to fulfill it. Paul said the law is the tutor for us. In other words, it will teach you that you can never live right or righteous and holy without grace. What's grace? It's a who, Jesus As you think about that, and I think about these audiences, this poor woman caught in the act, embarrassed, drug out for all these people and in front of Jesus. So let's look again at verse two. It says, now early in the morning, he came into the temple again with the people with him, and what? He sat down and he talked. I mean, I just picture this woman being caught in the act of adultery, pulled out of bed, what, and drugged through the streets, embarrassed and shamed, and brought her right in the middle of what we would call church service, in front of the evangelists. And all of her accusers threw her out by her hair. Who knows what they'd done, beat her and slapped her and drug her through the streets, the dirt. And there she is. I don't even know if she was clothed. Maybe someone gave her a robe or something. How painful it can be when we're caught in the act. Jump down to verses three and four. It says, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in the adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act, not hearsay or they just were starting or it's over. No, in the very act of adultery. See, too often we read this story like it's just some parable, like it's just something that's, you know, a nice story that we need to hear to encourage us. But this woman was actually caught in the very act of adultery. Man, can you imagine the shame she felt, the embarrassment? And not only that, there's a lot of other ramifications beyond that. The room was charged with emotion, And all these different audiences had their point of view. Verse five, it says, now, here's what they say to Jesus. Verse five, 
they're going to preach to Jesus, God, grace, right? Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? You see, they wanted to trick Jesus, right? Because he had this great audience and people were starting to see him and sense that he might be the savior, the soon coming king. God incarnate or in flesh. And, and, and they're getting nervous. They're about to lose their power. They're about to lose their positions, their titles. And what do they do? They tricked this. They're trying to trick Jesus because they know if he comes against what Moses said, it's blasphemy. And if they can just get him to blaspheme, they could end his life right there. They could stone him. But if you do a little research in Leviticus uh, chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22, it references to more than just the one caught in the act. It references also that there must be a witness there. And what would happen, both the man and the woman in the law would be stoned and put to death. Both adulterers would be stoned and put to death. And there had to be a witness. So their motives were not true, right? Their motives were not pure. And then verse six, it said, this they said, testing him that they might have something which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. You know, there's times when you're accusing your spouse or your friend or someone you know or someone you don't even know and you think God hears you. He can't hear you because all God can hear is faith. It's called the prayer petition, the prayer of faith because faith is the vehicle which enables you and I to communicate with the seen and the unseen. Faith is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what faith is that vehicle that God uses to transport communication with you. And what happens is whenever you don't operate in faith and you operate in the accusation and negativity, remember what we sow, we reap. If you want a little grace, sow a little grace. <laughs> so Jesus was certainly paying attention to, their, to what, how they were responding, but he wasn't going to respond. Now, what happened? I wonder, you know, when we look at this and think about it, what did he write in the sand? It was never made clear. No one's ever said, oh, this is exactly what he wrote while he was writing but as attention was growing and the confrontation continues, all of a sudden, it's no longer about this woman, right? And it's certainly not about the man that was involved. It's all about Jesus because ultimately what Satan wants to do is tear down God's kingdom. Ultimately, what Satan wants is unbelief to be in charge. You see, unbelief operates by the law. Unbelief operates by the structures of this world and what we're confined to and what we know and what we can see and what we can discern and the knowledge we have, but then also depending on our character, how we even evaluate or judge through that. Because we have favorites, right? I'm going to probably be judging my boys a little different than someone else's sons if they all got into something. Wouldn't you? Even though we try not, but we know them and we know our children. I mean, those other kids on the street, they're crazy, but my kid, they just drug him into all that. We're biased. 
We're biased because of relationship. We're biased because of familiarity. But I want you to know the good gospel news is God is biased over you. He's biased over you. He was biased over you before you were saved. He came and he died with no guarantee that you'd come to Christ. Some of you in this room, some of you under the sound of my voice online, you haven't came to Christ or you're far away from him. And he died and rose again for you anyway. He paid the same very price for you. And the Bible says that when we are born again, what happens? We become sons and daughters of God. Now we're his kids. You know, I'm saying, don't mess with my kids. I don't care who you are. Don't mess with my kids. I'd say that to people. I broke that curse off this church. People say, ah, you know those pastor's kids. I said, stop it. What do you mean? You know pastor's kids. I said, you better stop it. You're not going to stand in my presence and put a label on my kids when they're infants. Just because I'm a pastor instead of some pastor, they're going to be crazy. I rebuke that devil. I'll be like Jesus did to Peter, except I might put hands on you. Said, oh, you're the rock, yeah. You heard God. Only the fa- my father in heaven could have told you that. And then before the end of the chapter, I'll rebuke you, Satan. Get from me. Jesus was at least nice enough to let you go. I might not let you go. Because don't mess with my kids. Now, if I feel like that, and I'm a natural man, how does God feel about you? Even when you're caught in the act, his love does not change. Even when you're caught in the act, he's still your audience of one. Even when you're caught in the act, if everybody else gives up on you and throws you to the side, you always have the audience of one, your Lord and Savior. He'll never leave you or forsake you. But I think about this as they continued asking and badgering Jesus and he's just down there writing and saying, this poor woman's lying there and maybe naked or close to that, beaten, embarrassed, probably with her head covered up, wanting to just go away. You ever been so embarrassed that you cover yourself up like, if I could just disappear, I want to disappear. Could you imagine being her right now, knowing that even what the law says is that she should be stoned? thinking surely they'll probably stone me just to prove a point, if nothing else. So there Jesus is, just riding in the dirt. Verse 7, it says, He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. And again, he just stooped back down to the ground. See, Deuteronomy 17, 7 says, the hand of the witness shall be the first upon him, <clears throat> shall be the first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So they wanted all the people to get angry, right? They were trying to get the church folks up so they'd kill their own, which is not very hard in today's society. Church does a great job of killing its own. Even Christian outlets, TV, radio, they do a great job of killing their own. Church, Christians, people do a great job of killing their own. So you're supposed to be at a different standard because you're blood-bought and born again. Let me tell you something. Last time I checked, I got flesh just like you. I'm not advocating sin. Sin brings separation. Sin brings pain. Sin, But I just want you to know 
that God didn't save you from sin. He bought you back, redeemed you as his child. But I'm also speaking to that other audience in the church. And how do we see those that are called in the act? How do we see those that fail? How do we see those that disappoint? How do we see those that cause destruction and destroy? How do we see those people? Because you are part of the audience. Either you're the one in the act or you're the one that's made aware of the act. Either way, baby, you in it and you will be evaluated by God how you handle it. it. It just simply amazes me how people can pray and Man, that is the, oh, God, anoint me, baptize me, fill me. I want to do this. I want to do that for you, God. And then out of the same mouth, they tear the kingdom down. They tear other believers down, maybe even family members down. They, they tear church leadership down. And they forget that God said, what? Touch not my anointed. The anointed one is not just me. I'm one of his anointed ones. But every blood-bought Christian is an anointed one of God. Every one of you have been anointed with his grace, with his blood, with his redemption, with his spirit, with his power. When they come against you, they come against a tre- an earthen vessel that carries the treasure of the spirit and presence of God. But also remember, when you come against them, you just sowed the same seed. What kind of harvest are you going to get? Quiet in the Holy Ghost house. So when Jesus said this, nobody wanted to talk about the witness because that wasn't part of the setup, right? That, that wasn't part of the plan to talk about the witness. This is all about get this poor woman, do this to her, get her. She'd probably slept with that person before. They knew this or they set it up to where she would. It is all a big setup. And what they do, their whole focus is to get Jesus to forgive her in front of all the people. Because if he does that, he came against Moses and the law. So we look at it, God is not even showing them this or asking them that question to bring shame. Jesus is not out to shame his accusers. If he were, wouldn't he have done that on the cross when they were spitting on him and had him naked in front of his mom and everybody he knew in the whole world saw him beaten, hung naked as a man? Couldn't even recognize his face, bleeding and swollen and beating with the cat of nine tails. And finally, right before he, what did they do? They, they took a spear and punctured him till the water came out to fulfill the prophecy as he took his last breath. What did he say? What was his last words? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, he can forgive us, but what's the repercussions of what we did? I think sometimes the repercussion on the audience that views it and judges it is greater than the one in the act because theirs is exposed, it's out there. But we that sit around us, the audience as believers and judge them and condemn, I'm not saying don't correct, I'm not saying don't lead, I'm not saying don't instruct, I'm just saying be careful. When we're in situations and we have an opportunity just to agree, 
Maybe we don't have a dog in a fight, but we'll have some other Christian. No, 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 no. Well, yeah, I know, sister. Yeah, brother, I know how it is. You might just want to just do what Jesus did, stoop down and tie your shoe or something and just shut up and not pour hot coals on your head. Hmm. Grace has an audience. Always has an audience. So Jesus wasn't trying to shame him. Hmm. Look at verse 9. Somebody's like, please get to verse 12 and get done with this preacher. So once he asked that question, We had another period of silence that ensued. Look at verse 9. It says, Then those who heard it, being convicted of their conscience, by their conscience. What's that? Your heart, your mind, your decision-making resources. Went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. The older Pharisees and Sadducees saw that their scheme had failed. And at first I thought they just walked away because they saw it fail. But then I got to looking at it a little closer. I wonder what he was writing. Was he writing that full scripture out that both the woman and the witness and the man involved, both the woman and the man involved had to be stoned? And what else he wrote in the sand scriptures that convicted the Pharisees. He said certain things that any man or woman could understand in their language. But everyone there couldn't read. Everyone there, you think reading is a big deal now. What about then? He didn't have a paper to write it on. He wrote it in the sand. So that means only the ones closest to him could see it, which would be his closest accusers. When his closest accusers saw what he wrote in the sand, it convinced them to walk away. But look at the wisdom in this. Not only did it convince them to walk away, all these other bystanders that were with them following their leadership, when they saw their leaders walk away, they followed their leaders. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now, some have interpreted this passage that Jesus is just easy on sin. no. See, judgment is delayed, but not denied. Any sin we commit that we haven't repented of, that we, that we don't have under the blood, someday we'll, we'll have to face that. Matter of fact, you'll face repercussions even now in this life, but even later on. Why? Because that the reason Jesus didn't condemn her, it's not time. It's a dispensation of grace, right? It's a dispensation of our Savior. So therefore, the Bible says, Paul says to be what? Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As immediately as we're in the presence of the Lord, judgment comes. As a matter of fact, you either go to heaven or hell with your leader, with your God. It's sad that we cause so much pain and suffering to one another on this earth. It's not like everybody doesn't have enough stuff to deal with, enough problems to deal with. 
It's like we allow the law of religion to be our tutor even today. We can read and learn and see how religion treated. Jesus said this in one passage, I think it's Matthew 7 or Mark 7 or 8, right there, said that the thief, excuse me, thief of my power, religion is the thief of my power. In other words, the only thing that can rob him of his power is religion. And he said religion through unbelief. In other words, people that have a form and a manner and habits and rituals with no faith. Who is it that says Jesus doesn't heal? Who is it that says Jesus doesn't fill with the Holy Spirit? The world don't know those terms that well unless they heard it from church people. What's sad in the body of Christ, and I'm not putting people down that don't believe the way I believe, but I'm just saying, how do, can you be healed, pray to be healed if you don't believe in healing? Can, can, would you even pray to be healed or just pray to suffer more? Would you even be prayed, pray to be delivered if you don't believe God still delivers you from addiction and satanic powers and oppression and depression? Would you even pray? Are you just going to, well, God just plucked another lily from the valley. That's the goofiest stuff I ever heard. I hate the spirit of death. It's probably the sister of gossip, the sister of gossip and death, probably the same family. Because gossip kills people's influence. Satan's out to kill people's influence. Well, I don't know why I'm on this today. Oh, Lord, I must be missing something. Somebody must be yapping around or something. I don't know. I'll hear about it soon, though. We're to love one another. We're to care for one another. We're to be there for one another. Well, in the good and the bad. And we can sit up there in marriage, uh, well, until death do us part, in health and in sickness. But what about the greatest covenant of all is as believers, as sons and daughters of God. We're supposed to be there in sickness and in health, right? Only death can separate us for a season. We're going to be eternally living together and we can't get along here because of our politics or because of, you know, our opinions or because the news tells us how to behave. Religion tells us how to behave. I wonder what Jesus would have to say right now if he was in our nation. This nation that's under God. What are you saying, preacher? I'm just saying, remember, you're always a part of an audience. And you're not going to be judged by all these other, You're going to be judged by your heart. You see, that's the difference between law and grace. Because isn't that what Jesus said? But whenever they said, uh, they asked him a parable or something, asked him about something, he said, well, why don't you take that two before out of your eye before you try to, try to take a splinter out of your brother's eye? Then he said, oh, about adultery? No, he said, even the thought in your heart, you committed adultery already. What? No, you got to be in the act. No. He said, if it's even in your heart, you've committed it already. It's funny how we all put lines in the sand of what sin is, right? Depends on how it involves us, how it involves those we know and love. So we always got these little measurements. But see, grace is grace. Unmeasurable, boundless. If it wasn't for grace, we wouldn't even have a planet. God would have... Sent this thing on out a long time ago and started over. 
but for grace. Isn't it nice to know that God loves us when we're unlovely? God loves us when we're mean and ornery and nasty. God loves us when we don't care, when we're mad, when we're angry. We think God only loves us when we're doing good and everything's, you know, everything's turning up roses, right? God loves us just as we are, not as we think we should be or anyone else thinks we should be. Not anything we think we can become or do. God loves us just the way we are. And when I think about this, it just amazes me. Every time I get in on on this text, it's like you can just stay there because it's so powerful. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, it talks about how grace came by what it talks about uh, that, G, that Moses uh, gave the law, but Jesus came. In other words, God came in person so it didn't get messed up. And then it makes it real clear in John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one could, could obey the law. No one could live that life. The standard was too high. It was intentionally too high. God set a standard that we can't live without grace. He set a standard we can't live without his love and his mercy and his hope and his forgiveness. So if you think you're out here getting so holy, you're probably just living out of habit. You know, I don't do a lot of things I used to do that I used to have a big desire before I came to Christ, right? And even a little while after, I don't get into that stuff because I've already built other habits now. A lot of us is habits, people. But be careful about our relationship. The thing you need to guard more than anything else is your audience with grace, your audience with God, your audience, how your heart is, what your intentions are about, what you really think and what you really believe. Because he knows the very intentions of your heart. He tells us in Hebrews 4.12. Not only does he know your heart, he knows the very intentions of it. He knows what you're thinking. Heart represents your soul and also represents your spirit. Depends on which Greek word is used at the time. What is your soul? It's your mind, will, and emotions. It's your decision-making resources. So be careful when you're an an audience of God that that you are properly focused with a healthy resource of your heart or your conscience. Hmm. See, he's almost over, Gertrude. We can get out of here. Oh, geez, I want to go grill those burgers and dogs. I'm sad now. Thought I was going to get built up today. Then it goes on to say in verse 12, after he says, tells her, go and sin no more. He knew she wouldn't be able to not sin anymore. But he said, go and sin no more. But he knew he'd be there for her if she did. Then in verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So basically, the message this broken woman was what? I don't condemn you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to love you. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to lead you. I'm here to be with you. 
so you're not alone. I'm here to heal you. I'm here to take away your pain. I am your grace. I am your Savior. You see, Jesus is not only Lord and Savior and God. He is grace. He loves us unconditionally. When no one else would love you, he still loves you. When you don't even love yourself, he loves you. So many people think their mistakes in life has disqualified them for God's grace. It's like you're going to, you know, I'll just, ah, I could never be saved. Why would God save somebody like me? Or I'm saved, but I just need to be a little church mouse and quiet because God can't use me. He knows what I've been through, what I've done. And Satan is constantly robbing us of our victory, constantly robbing us of our authority and our power. He wants you, God wants you to live fully in his grace because it's not your grace. It's not your gift. It's his. His gift to you. It's not your Holy Spirit. He is Holy Spirit and he lives in you. It's not your treasure. You're just the vessel that carries it. Grace is not something you deserve or you achieve or you work out. Some people believe, well, I don't deserve grace. I don't go to church. I've never been to church. I don't read the Bible. Others think your sin's too great, like you're a VIP sinner. Oh, I'm the greatest sinner ever. Lord, can't ever save me. Lord, have mercy. Yeah, I've been with those sinners on their deathbed. And win them to the Lord. I'm trying to remember if I never did win at least one, versus everyone I didn't win to the Lord, but. What I always come to find out, it wasn't that their sin was so big, it's just that their guilt was so big. And then, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Well, you've been a hypocrite all this time, saying you don't care about God and you don't need God. Well, look at you, you need him now, don't you? I didn't say it like that, but that's what I'm in my heart going, buddy, I'm I'm going for you. I'm going to get you to heaven one way or another. So look, man, it's not about your works. It's not, you don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve heaven. No one deserves heaven. No one deserves grace, but it's been given. Now, you can take it or not. That's your choice. That's the only decision you got is will you receive his grace? Will you take his grace or not? That's it. Doesn't matter if it's your first day or your last day on this planet, your first hour or your last hour. You have to make that decision. It's kind of like this. When we're drowning, We don't need an instructor, we need a savior. When we're drowning, we don't just need someone to instruct you how to save someone, we need a lifeguard that's gonna jump in and get us. That's what grace is. Grace is beyond the tutoring and the instruction. Grace is your lifeguard. Grace is your eternal life. And it's in the hands right there and it takes God's grace to bring you out of the bowels of hell. God's grace to open up heaven for you. Let me end with this. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love of the Father. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. This is what we are. We are children of God.